0: Episode of Seize the Moment podcast. We have a very special guest today. We have Jeff Fuhrer. He's a foundation fellow at the Eastern Bank Foundation and non resident fellow with the Brookings Institution. He was previously executive vice president and director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, where he was also responsible for the bank's diversity and inclusion functions. His new book, available now, is called The Myth That Made Us How False Beliefs About Racism and Meritocracy Broke Our Economy and how to fix it. Welcome, Jeff. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Absolutely. And as we often start, we're going to start with a passage from Jeff, Jeff's book. Jeff wrote, As I learned about the broken parts of our economy, I felt compelled to speak up In the course of my career, I had spoken to hundreds of groups about conditions in the national economy. I continued to do so, but now devoted the latter half of my presentations to a discussion of the reality of low-income, disproportionately minority workers, along with the history of systemic racism and its impact on wealth accumulation amongst people of color. In all of these talks, I emphasize the role that corrosive and ignorant narratives have played in explaining away and perpetuating gross inequalities, especially the narrative that all you need to do is work hard and let the markets work their magic and everything will be great. These presentations seem to fill a need amongst audiences. Perhaps some already had an appreciation for societal injustices and inequalities, but few had been provided a blueprint of the economic engine that drove those injustices and inequalities. At each talk, numerous attendees told me that they had never been confronted with the evidence, or that they knew things were wrong, but they weren't sure how or why. And many listeners thanked me for putting the big picture together in an accessible, albeit disheartening way. The feedback deepened my sense of purpose and convinced me that I needed to get this message out to more people. So, Jeff, I love that. I mean, it really sounds like you're doing some absolutely profound work. So I want to just get like the technical aspects of all this out of the way, just for our audience to kind of get a foundation of what we're talking about here. Sure. Uh, the two main system of economic thought, especially in the United States, tend to be Keynesian economics and what we tend to call trickle down Re- Re- uh, Reagan a- economics, you know, Reagan-ish economics, whatever you, right. you want to use. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, obviously you can feel free to add on whatever else is in there. Obviously there might be some systems that uh, let's say audience members don't necessarily know about or have. heard of but these seem to be the two main ones so can you tell us a little bit about them how they differ and why you seem to prefer the keynesian version more so than the other one
1: sure um so this that that the debate about what what's the best way to describe the economy goes way way back um and so maybe to make it relatively simple there are folks who either want to believe or just do believe that the best thing for the government to do and the best way to run an economy is to kind of leave it alone um, markets, you know, are magical, they do amazing things, according to this theory. And when the government gets involved, it tends to cause problems. Okay, so that's, that's a you know, this is a bit of a caricature, but that's one side of the debate. And on the other side is, well, you know, markets do some things pretty well, no question. They, without markets, would be hard to run an economy. But they get themselves into trouble for pretty frequently. We all get ourselves into trouble, markets or otherwise and there are really important times when the government needs to step in when the private sector has fallen apart um why because if they don't this this theory would go because if they don't then regular folks are going to suffer right they're going to lose their jobs we saw in 2007 8 9 they can lose their houses this is not the least bit fun and so because of the sort of this the at least occasional imperfection of markets it's really important for the government to stand ready to do what it needs to do so that's that's a caricature of the two positions but in describing that i'm I'm talking about um you know some of this grew out of the aftermath of the great depression when people said what the heck went wrong here mm-hmm. and part of the answer is the government didn't really know how to intervene effectively the, the fed was really learning what to do as a central bank and the, the fiscal authority of the federal government and so on weren't particularly effective so some of it grew out of that but what i want to emphasize is it's not only those really disruptive episodes whether it's a recession a sort of run-of-the-mill recession or the great depression or the great recession of, of the early 2000s mid-2000s um it's not just those times that we have to think hard about what the government's supposed to do it's across longer swaths of our history so going back to the founding of the republic and before and certainly through the Civil War, through slavery, and the aftermath of slavery, the civil rights era, all of that, there are th- there, it's important to recognize what choices the government has made, in most cases with our blessing, or with our complicity, in some cases um, with, with our ignorance, I suppose. But they've made really important choices that have changed the way our economy works. It continues to be a capitalist economy, but it's not the only way. For a capitalist economy to run and so we the government and to a large extent the private sector have made a bunch of choices over time uh, that have shaped the economy in very particular ways ways that are really beneficial to a subset of the occupants of our country and not so good for large swaths of folks in our country so yeah so there's that keynesian and the the uh, free market uh, whatever you want to call it um branch they're different not just in times of recession but also in the way they think about how to structure the economy over long periods of time and that the book is more about the latter about those long periods of time what happened what did we choose and why and and how did it put us in the position we are today where i would argue tens of millions of families that's a lot of families maybe it's 120 to 130 million families in the country tens of millions of them are not making it and obviously to the point of the title of the book, it's not because they're not working hard. It's because they're fighting against really tough odds. They have the decks stacked against them. And importantly, they don't really have the same opportunity that some other folks have had and that we'd like to believe the country gives everybody, but they, we don't give everybody the same opportunity. So that's a long answer to that question, Leon and Alan, but that's, that's getting into what the book is about.
0: Is, is it the case that the the myths that we believe in these economic myths like pull yourselves up by your uh, bootstraps or it's actually the the level of individual effort that you put in that may or may not contribute to your success is that really what's kind of contributing to us in a way? so uh, rather it's not us holding ourselves back but do you think it's that there's that widely held belief that people have that kind of lets the government kind of perpetuate the current system
1: yeah I, th- I think that's exactly what happens. So um, it's important to, to think about that key narrative just for a second. We, you know, first of all, it is aspirational and not a bad aspiration that individual effort would be sufficient to succeed. I'd, I'd love to believe that was true, unfortunately, it's not, but it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an important aspiration. But in terms of what you're raising, Alan, um, when we when we as a people, think about government policies that might level the playing field and provide greater opportunity for lower-income folks and often people of color, we take that narrative and turn it on its head and say, well, we we think, we'd like to believe that what accounts for success is largely individual effort. And if that's true, then we when we see people who aren't succeeding, we say, well, they didn't put in the work. They didn't work, right. they didn't put the effort in. Now that that may seem, you may seem like, well, I don't really think that way or not not all of me and my friends think that way. It's interesting. So yes, there's probably some people who are onto that and they get that that's a false narrative, but there's there's lots of people. It's not that they have ill will or a badly intentioned, but they still, you can see from survey evidence and you can see from popular media that we still talk about it all the time as if that really is the way the world works. And it's not, but yes, that narrative is used by often by politicians who have other motives but they can use those narratives to get people to strike down you know additional poverty relief for provision of opportunity broader educational opportunity better health care coverage all that kind of stuff because they say, wait no no the, these people should be working hard it's their responsibility to take care of themselves and i i hasten to add i've got three my wife and i have three kids okay they're all grown now did we talk talk to them about responsibility and hard work of course because is that important? Yes, it is important. But the, the message of the book is it's not sufficient to succeed for way too many people. So of course, I'm and I'm not arguing for just massive government handouts so that people don't need to work. What I'm arguing is for providing opportunity so that given the opportunity, hard work actually will lead to reasonable success for far more people than it does today. So yeah, I still preach hard work. I think it's a good thing. I, I think putting your your time in and working hard is, is a really good personal attribute um it's just that our the structure of our economy doesn't reward that the way it should
2: right yeah and then just going back to the basics so can you tell us a little bit about what trickle down economics actually are oh I'm sorry yeah because you asked that. yeah it's okay it's okay and then so as we talk about trickle down economics what the evidence has been over the past I don't know probably 50 to 60 years at this point uh and then why do people keep holding on to it because I mean even still especially amongst the far right it's a pretty predominant and popular economic system
1: yeah So trickle-down just means that one of the best ways to achieve success in the country is to make sure that the sort of most well-off, richest people and corporations are well taken care of, because after all, as people say, well, they create the jobs. And so if you make sure their taxes are low and that they're getting plenty of resources, all that good stuff is going to trickle down through the economic system to folks like you and me and regular folks who are trying to work for a living. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... I mean, when you say it, it doesn't sound like it's you know inherently false on the face of it, except that uh, except that it doesn't work. And so there have been really careful analyses of lots of tax programs that reduced taxes on upper income folks, reduced corporate income taxes, And then you look to see, can you see any of that flowing down to the average rank and file person and over the long span of time, and again, I'm talking about over longer decades spans of time, there's just there's no evidence that any of that trickle down occurs. And then you think, well, if that's true, why does it keep being referred to, and why does it keep motivating folks who make policy choices? And the answer is, because it's still true that it shovels resources to people who are rich and powerful, right? And of course, they're they most of them, many of them are in favor of that. I don't want to say every person with with means like that is an evil person and doesn't get that this is a bad game to play. but on the whole, it's been really successful for them, and so they keep arguing for that, even though the evidence says. It doesn't do anything for the average person. And I think the, some of the strongest, most simple and obvious evidence of that is that so the way our, our economy is structured as of today means that the largest corporations in, in the country make enormous profits, record level profits You know, relative to the overall scale of the economy, not just in dollars, but as a share of GDP, if you want to put it that way. They're making record profits. So they're not suffering in that dimension at all in fact they're making so many profits that last year 2022 um they took over a trillion dollars of their 2.6 trillion dollars of profits and used it to repurchase their own shares which is just a way of boosting up their own stock prices they got loads of money they're doing great right so the, the the beginning of the trickle down process that's working fine we put the money up to the top end of the distribution but at the same time that they're making those insane profits, um, many of them send workers home, not their you know, highest level professional and C-suite folks, they're doing fine too, but they send their run of the mill, mid-level workers and lower level workers home without enough to survive. And you know that's a gross violation of trickle down. It's not only trickling down, it's more like sucking up, right? Sure. It's the profits are getting sucked out of those folks, taking the life out of them. And they go home at night and many of them need programs like uh, what used to be called food stamps, SNAP now. um, They need that to survive. They need that to get enough food to live. Now that's messed up, right? That is really messed up. If you were the CEO of that company, I don't think you would sleep well at night if you knew that's what was happening. And then in terms of, uh, just a final point on this, in terms of public policy, that's a massive subsidy in a a sense to those corporations because rather than, than those corporations paying the wages and benefits that would really be um, life and family sustaining, we the people and the government are picking up the slack by paying uh, g- for government programs. And trust me, I'm really glad those government programs are there because it is a matter of survival for many of those families that they can draw on those benefits. But in terms of where, you know, <laughs> who's getting the, the welfare in the economy, well, that's a pretty big flow of money into private corporations to support those businesses that make huge profits. But don't pay their workers the way you and I would think they should be paid.
0: You know, so that's, that's funny. that ain't
1: no trickle down.
0: <laughs> no, for sure. And 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 it's funny from from sort of an unexamined, you know, sort of layman's perspective, like before I knew more about this, I I would have thought, ah, oh, well, uh trickle down economics makes sense, right? I mean, if these big corporations, uh, the more money they make, the more resources they have to hire more people, right? And to Pay them more, right? Uh, in fact, I, I was actually more interested in just them hiring more people, at least. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it seems to not be the case, right? And and it's that's not. actually surprising. Uh, that's why education uh, about this, you know, is is very important.
2: Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. You know- Go ahead, sorry. I, I just also want to make a point about this. What's so interesting about this is you have people on the far right screaming about communism and how communism is all theory theory based, and you know, and the fact that like people abuse power, and if you put regular people in power, essentially they become despots. But what's so interesting is when it comes to trickle down economics, all of a sudden these people with a ton of power, the wealth, the ultra wealthy, the mega wealthy, these people are supposedly you know benevolent angels or at the very least extremely rational actors. So they'll argue on the one hand, well the communists become drunk with power, but yeah. these- with a ton of wealth no no they're completely rational like why <laughs> would they put people out of jobs right they need people to uh, buy their products they need people to get their services uh essentially there's this understanding that only communists are drunk with power but everybody else you know the ultra elite right. smart one so it's yeah be- i, I find that
1: the, the the people you know that rank and file if they get a little bit more uh they're so far from being drunk with anything whereas mm-hmm. the folks who have enormous wealth begin to think that they're really special people right i mean it's, it they they also in some sense believe in the the myth of uh, individual effort is what causes success because they they look at their own outcomes and say wow I must be incredibly hardworking and brilliant right because look what I look what I got I got a lot of money I'm running a corporation or whatever so they they are drunk actually with that kind of economic power I think um, I I'd be happy to see a little bit on the other side I'd risk you know a little risk that some other folks might uh, enjoy the the benefits of power including a little bit of that kind of drunkenness. Um, yeah, and this is all, you know. so when you say how to, why, why does trickle down not work? I mean, what's happening is, there's, a, there's another narrative I talk about in the book, which is attributable to Milton Freeman. And Milton Freeman has done some good things and some, in this case, I think not such a good thing, and he's not with us anymore. But um, this is not such a good thing. He said in 1970 that the one and only job of large you know, publicly traded corporations is to maximize shareholder value right okay so you know what that means so that means and that's equivalent, roughly equivalent to maximizing profits so when you think about well why why don't these guys with their are extremely successful these companies that are extremely successful why are they not hiring more people and paying them more and the answer is because their job is to maximize profits and satisfy the shareholder and the best way to do that is to keep their costs as low as possible mm-hmm. um, and the largest cost for most every company every company in the us is the labor cost and they've done an incredibly good job of that. We know that they made the profits, but you can also see that they have skinnied down workforces, compensation, benefits, anything that costs, they've skinnied that down at the expense of their workers, but to the benefit of their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And their shareholders, of course, are, are people who are generally already wealthy. I mean, stock ownership is somewhat broader now than it used to be, but it's still highly concentrated among people with significant wealth. So that's why they're doing it. You might think trickle down would work but not in the presence of this really overwhelming impulse to satisfy shareholders. And the reason I emphasize share you know, companies that are publicly traded, their shareholders, because there's a big difference between what's going on with the large corporations and what's going on with small to medium-sized businesses. Small to medium-sized businesses are beloved by most people in our country, right? If you go look at the, the Gallup polls on who, who they trust, they trust small businesses. Why is that? Because they live and work in their neighborhoods, because they hire their neighbors, because they do things for the community, like, you know, fund the the Little League team or the Christmas pageant or whatever they're doing, right? I mean, they, they, they do all these community-based things, and they're not insanely profitable. You know, the best of them are doing okay, but, but they're, not, they're not making uh, – they're not sucking up profits. They're not doing the, the inverse of trickle down they're usually doing something good in their communities and they face significant challenges, all kinds of competition. So that, anyway, a little bit of a long story on how is it that the corporations got into this position? It's through the exercise of that narrative. And while Milton Friedman first articulated it in that stark way, people like Jack Welch, there's some great book or two on Jack Welch, perfected it. And, you know, today you talk to corporations, they still believe this, um, absolutely, it is their one of their driving driving principles. Hmm. I, I, in the book, I say there's a little bit of good news in terms of talk, less in terms of action. There's good news in terms of talk, because when you look at listen to the National Business Roundtable a few years ago, that was headed up by Jamie Dimon, who you may have heard of. Yep. Um, and Jamie Dimon said, "Well, you know, we we need to change our business model. This this thing about the profit above all else needs to change." And that, those were good words.
2: Well, you know what's so interesting about that? But I'm- not it's-
1: actions. Yet.
2: Yeah. <laughs> And then it seems like an apparent contradiction, because on the one hand, you have this profit model and you have this sense of, okay, so we think that this is zero sum. We're in a hyper-competitive environment where business is competing with other businesses. So of course, our profit share has to pretty much be the highest in, in that pie, right? We have to eat right. the best part of the pie. So if we're going to do that, obviously, we have to keep the cost low, right? In terms of obviously, uh, in terms of our remedy of our output, right? So how would that even make sense from a philosophical perspective that on the one hand, it's a zero sum game, but on the other hand, we're going to have, let's say, some of our money trickle down to our employees let's say to other people etc how would that work that that doesn't really make sense you would think in the hyper competitive environment i mean we're sucking up as much resources as possible
1: you would think we would be sucking up resources and developing resources as much as possible because after all in the long run if you want your company and the rest of the companies to grow you have to innovate you need to increase productivity you got to do things better the best way to do that is to have a workforce that is properly compensated well-trained, learning more about new things all the time and ultimately contributing to your improved efficiency, productivity, innovation. But the way things are now, you've got a bunch of people who are not well-paid. They're not going to be super loyal to the company and they don't have the the time or they don't get the education and training to be as innovative as they could be. So to the point about zero sum, the best way to think about what I'm saying in this book is all of the improvements that I envision are not zero-sum. They're positive-sum. They're ways to grow the entire economy, which is good for everybody, right? So if, if, if I'm right, and there's 20, 30, 40% of our uh, workers who are either not fully engaged in the economy or engaged in a way that doesn't allow them to really you know, use all of the talents that they've got, mm-hmm. then when we bring them fully into the economy, the economy grows dramatically. Of course, that's good for them, as so long as not all of their success is sucked up to the top again, but in principle, that's good for them. And as they become um, more productive members of society, if you will, in that economic sense, um, and, and are earning more and are spending more, well, that spills over to everybody else in the economy and the rest of the economy benefits as well. It's a positive sum game if we pursue the kinds of investments that I talk about that are investments in people's capacity, allowing them to make mm-hmm. the best use of whatever gifts and talents they have. We're leaving so much on the table under the current system. I provide estimates of that and, you know, they're very crude, but it's a lot. It's a lot in terms of dollars and it's a lot in terms of human potential. Those both matter to me. Yeah, I'm an economist, but I'm at least an aspiring human being, too. And, you know, people who are left behind like that, not just for a few years when they're starting up, but through their entire lives, they never really get a chance. They you've seen the statistics on economic mobility, you know, the odds of moving up in terms of income or wealth, well, they're not good. And so these aren't temporary problems for folks. These are lifelong problems for folks that they never get a chance to really get past paycheck to paycheck or not even having enough to, to make ends meet. So yeah, way past zero sum is where we are. This, th- these are these are improvements that are end up being great for everyone. And and I'm not shy about thinking about some redistribution to start that that momentum going. It's fine because as, as I've suggested, between profits. And I didn't touch yet on unpaid taxes, which are huge and, you know, the insanely high incomes and wealth of of a small fraction of our our country, which amounts to a lot. And even in the aggregate, we have the capacity to do some redistribution. But as I say, in the end, that's not the major story. The major story is building potential, the potential of human folks working. So that's in my view, that's always a good thing. That's like that's economic development 101 good for everybody. Why do we not do it? Well, the answer is we're captive to these narratives, these bad ways of describing the world that are too zero-sum. They're too um, individual-focused, for one thing. They're too single-corporation-focused, and they're too insane wealth-focused that the best thing in the world is to have more and more billionaires. It's like, I don't think so. I don't think we need more billionaires. I think we need more folks who have livable incomes and can save something and build up some wealth so that they can do some of the things that wealth allows you to do.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, then in that case, so that makes sense. Of course, you, uh, more people they get uh, higher wages. They can contribute to the economy. Right. It won't be just like these people, really super wealthy people. Right. You know. And uh, how do we address uh, maybe uh, racial and sort of economic segregation in terms of that? Like, because uh, I, I a lot of people think that, uh, for example, one of the myths is that. Um, you know, if if let's say you're poor, uh, it might be again like we discussed earlier due to your individual effort. But they totally disregard, you know, the fact that uh, systemic racism is still uh, prevalent. It's it's not something we, we're not still we're not yet living rather yep. in sort of a post racism world. So how do we sort of address that?
1: Well, you 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 put a, a few things together yeah. in that question, Alan. It's, yes. it's It's no, which is fine, and they they're all interesting to me. I mean, so just to start with the first point, it is a fact that by and large, we are racially, ethnically, and economically or socioeconomically segregated, which is to say that mostly we live with people who earn and to a large extent look like us. And that's, that's a problem for a bunch of reasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But for one, if we want to change some of the narratives about who's working hard, if we want to get people to be better educated about what the history of systemic racism is in our country and what the effects are of systemic racism today, we, this is not an economics point. You could take it with a grain of salt, it comes from an economist. We need to get to know each other better. It's relationships, I'm just gonna say Trump, relationships um, blow up, narratives, right so no better example than uh, the national narrative about the lgbtq i'm sorry about that you can probably edit out that little blurb sure Uh, um there's no better example of that than our national narrative about the lgbtq plus population which when i was a kid in the 60s and the 70s was, was awful it was horrible right it was ignorant um I thought I didn't know anybody who was gay or or lesbian or, and I I probably did, but I didn't, I didn't know that. How did that change? It changed through a relationship, which is to say that over time, as in the first instances, really brave individuals came out to say, look, this is who I am. And then over time as that became more accepted, although it still isn't perfect today, um, we realize that this is our sons, daughters, parents, cousins, neighbors, coworkers, friends who are members of the LGBTQ plus community. And because and for most people, because we already cared about them, we love these people, the way we thought about them before had to be discarded to a large extent, you couldn't think of them as other. You couldn't say, well, they don't deserve the same rights, freedoms that, that I have as a straight guy. That relationship, that relationship stuff trumps the, the, uh, the narrative. Okay, so I think the same would be true in interacting with folks who are different race, ethnicity, or socioeconomic class. Mm-hmm. But I just told you that we're segregated along those lines. So that means that, does that mean it's not possible to break the narratives through relationship? I think there's no, it is possible. Because while we may not always live in the same neighborhoods, We often either work with or are uh, being provided services by folks who are in those economic and racial and ethnic um, categories, right? So our healthcare workers are typically, you know, not the doctors, but the folks who are, you know, doing the heavy duty, some of the nursing, but the transport and other lower paid uh, parts of the um, healthcare profession, taking care of older folks, they're, you know, disproportionately lower income, often people of color, Um, through our own experience, our family's experience, we actually do run into folks like that all the time. We also run into folks in the hospitality industry, right? For hotels, for restaurants, for service, for maintenance in our own, if we work in a medium to larger size company, there are folks who we do run into, who we interact with daily. And then the question for us is, do we take the time to be humans and get to know these folks, and build relationships, and in the process of doing that, break down any narratives we hold, let's hope unconsciously, about either folks who, you know, if you still have some racist bones in your body, I suppose we all do to some extent, but um, certainly economic class discrimination, start to break down the narratives about those because you get to know people who are living those lives. Um, So I, I think relationship is one of the ways that we can actually change that, despite the, the sort of residential segregation, we still have some workplace and service delivery, if you want to put it that way, um, uh, times in which we interact with, with folks who are not the same as us. And those are great opportunities. Not to lecture people, to listen, right? Mm-hmm. To learn and to actually develop a genuine relationship. And I, I say in this book that part of this book from my perspective is a, is a journey for me because I was an idiot, you know, 50 years ago, 30 years ago, I didn't know a lot of this stuff. I know more now. I don't know everything I need to know, but I know some more. That's a journey. Part of that journey, for me, has been getting to know through work relationships, through friendships, through um, working in low-income neighborhoods as part of my work with the Federal Reserve and part of my work now, and just listening to people through mentoring folks who are not white males and not high-income white males. Those are all relationships, and if we take the time to approach them genuinely like real human beings, Mm -hmm. it changes us. It changes us. Um, I was at an event that the foundation that I work for sponsored a few weeks back, and a member of the audience who lives in Newton is a a doctor who does all kinds of social justice work, um, health equality work, and all that. And he asked me about the... He said the Newton town meeting is debating zoning and building some more lower income housing. And he said, there's still resistance to that. I said, what would you tell them? And I said, I would tell them that. So one, wouldn't you like to be part of a solution that provides more affordable housing, just, you know, altruistically. But two, this is a great opportunity for Newton to, to get to know and, and welcome as neighbors, a bunch of folks that they might not otherwise see as frequently. And so my, you know, my philosophy on diversity and on humanity is that the more we get to know each other and the more we get to know people who are not the same as us, the richer we become and the more fulfilling our lives become. And I believe that because I've had the chance to do some of that in my life. But that's what I said to him about uh, the situation in Newton is it's it's a great opportunity for that community to grow, yes, contribute to a solution, but also grow Um, as people who now know folks they wouldn't get to know otherwise. And every time I meet someone who's not the same as me, I learn something, I get to know somebody who's a great person, who has some potential that you hope is going to be realized. Um, It's such a great experience. And afterwards, he emailed me He said, that was exactly the right answer. Now, I don't know if he's right or if I'm right either, but at least we agreed on that. And, you know, again, I'm far afield for someone who practices the technical aspects of (laughs) economics a lot. But i will say it resonates with me personally through my own experience and then talking to lots of other people that relationship stuff that chance to let other people into your life and to listen to what other people's experiences are about is is growth inducing and is so good for the communities in so many ways Mm -hmm. um so that is that is part of what helps us get over the segregation is yeah we can actually start inviting people to live with us by changing our zoning which Massachusetts have made some progress on or still working on that. Mm-hmm. We can take opportunities that present themselves in work or when we're interacting with folks who are providing us with, you know, healthcare services or or restaurant or, or hotel services or whatever it is that, that they're doing. There are opportunities there. I got to know some terrific folks, friends of mine now, who who worked in food services at the Federal Reserve. Um, was that, you know, like my normal crowd? No, we are a bunch of geeky economists most of the time. But I mean. These are terrific folks, such nice people working really hard at stuff that I don't know how to do. They do, but just we're willing to talk and and I listen to them and learn about their families, what's going on, what are the challenges, just life-changing. And I just think there's so many unpursued opportunities like that, that if we take some time to do that, that is a part of the solution for this kind of segregation and for defeating the narratives that as a country have driven us. To be stingy with how we provide opportunity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And going back into philosophy, so now I'm wondering about some of the dark sides of uh, government. Yeah. So, you know, I'm. Sure. Thinking- Okay. so we had you know the 2008 financial bailout right and now i'm thinking this about this in the context of a positive sum what you would call a positive sum game yeah. and so do you think that one of the main sort of barriers to positive sum thinking and again going back to zero sum thinking essentially is that these companies know that fundamentally either a it's complete hubris where they think they're going to win out regardless of what happens it doesn't really matter in terms of how the world works because they think they have so much to offer uh or do you think that on the other hand maybe they think that governments will bail them out like obviously what happened with the banks so what is it that's actually going on that's preventing most of these companies from participating in a positive-sum game, knowing that that's an option? I mean, obviously they don't think that. Uh, I'm sure they know that you know somebody's going to lose, but for whatever reason they don't think that's going to be me, and I wonder why.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think they do know that some of their behavior is zero-sum. Like, so when they when they pay their accountants to figure out ways to offshore profits so they don't get taxed at U.S. rates, when they just don't pay taxes due because that happens for some of them. Um, when they start cutting health benefits because it's expensive they they know that's helping their bottom line and it's not helping their employees and in the first instance for the avoided taxes, they know somebody else is paying those taxes. They know it. Hmm. so what stops them? I think it, it's a combination of things it's probably beyond me to explain exactly what all of business psychology is about, but I do think so i, I you know friends of mine. Friends of my kids who go into some really high compensation professions, they start to believe, partly because of the compensation, partly because of the culture in those companies. They believe that they're doing the most important thing and they deserve all that compensation. And then they start to think differently. Not everyone. Some some people can hold on to their principles, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But some of them just start thinking like, okay, so these poor people. Look at me. I mean, I'm I'm working hard. I'm doing great. I'm doing really important work. Why Why would I? devote any money or resources to them. They start to think differently. So there is a culture, a cultural aspect. There's a self-validation aspect that if I'm being paid this much, it must be because I'm doing something very important and because I'm really good at it. And uh, you know, how to change that? That's not a small thing. I I think it's also sort of sociological and I don't have sociological chops, so I hesitate to say too much, but I will say this, that there are examples of some really good leaders in private corporations who know that that's nonsense they know that they as the ceo they don't deserve to make 370 times the average worker in their company they know that and some of them don't get paid that much as a consequence and some of them you know say oh you know i could lift the the median wage in my corporation by 20 30000 bucks that may not seem like a lot to somebody who's making 25 million but to somebody who's making 30000 it's a life changer and those, those, those really good folks know that. The problem is so much in our country, uh, so much success in our country is determined by luck. And I mean the luck of conditions at your birth, what state you're born in, whether your parents have resources, wealth or income, whether your community supports education, whether you're born white or not. All those you know accidents of birth make a huge difference. And the reason I'm saying that now is because I don't want to rely just on the coalition of the good-willing few among the private sector to make significant changes like that because I don't think it works. And then, so back to your original question, because, yeah, folks who get to be the heads of really large corporations have significant egos. They believe in themselves. They have to believe in their corporation if they're going to lead it. and, And they do face some pressures to succeed some of which come from their boards of directors and shareholders who are all many of the same people so they f- at least feel as if they're under intense pressure to succeed in the way that Milton Friedman uh, defined which is boy I got to keep my stock prices up and I my market share growing all that stuff and I I can imagine you know as, as a human being it's hard for them to back away from that and gain the perspective that says wait a minute this is crazy so when a few people do that, we cheer, right? That's great. You find somebody like um, Pete, what's his last name? Pete Cadence, I'm get his last name wrong. He's in, in the book, who's a billionaire and, and says, I learned as a kid that, you know, you succeed by working hard. He says, but I, I, I know now, even as a billionaire, that's factually incorrect. So my job is to correct that misimpression and also to redistributing some of his billions to people who have less. I, what I, I'd love to see that. I just don't think it's going to make for a wholesale change, because those pressures, at least as perceived, um, seem to be real in especially the very large corporation private sector. And so we need someone like the federal government to coordinate that kind of a change in the system so that corporations, to some extent, are forced to reckon with the consequences of their actions for their own employees. Right, so if if you got if you making insane profits and you're you're paying people at your state minimum wage, the federal minimum wage is silly, state minimum wage in a state that's not very high. Well, there's no place in the country where anybody can survive on ten dollars an hour for a year's work. that You can't. The mm-hmm. cost of everything together is just, is way much higher than that. So if you're a, a really profitable corporation uh, and you're paying people like that, the federal government is going to have the right to step in and say, okay. See those profits you've got, you know, we can tax them or you can redistribute them one way or another. More of those are mm-hmm. going to your employees. Now there's lots of different ways of doing that. And and companies will work hard to avoid losing those profits because they still believe so strongly that profits are everything. And I'm not saying some profits are bad either. It's not that. but these are insane. I just don't believe in the coalition of the willing. I believe you need a coordinated solution so that luck is not what, if you happen to work for the right company, you're going to do all well. Well, that's not good enough. Or, and most of us, I think. Uh, or if you're in the right state that's progressive and is doing stuff to make make improvements on early childhood education and, and minimum wages and stuff, then aren't you lucky? So you live in that state. Um, that's not good enough because we've got too many states that aren't going to do any of that, sometimes for ideological reasons. It's just mm-hmm. cutting their citizens' noses off to spite their face. Um, so I think you need a coordinate, coordinated solution. And that, I, I love that, ever. actually. No, Go absolutely. I, I
0: I love that because uh, it's actually this sounds way more nuanced than something uh, like, for example, if let's say in New York the the minimum wage is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we on like uh, eighteen dollars. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, Eight, right. Like that. right. Okay. So I know a few small business owners that when they hear ah, okay, uh, the new minimum wage is eighteen yeah, dollars, they become yeah. upset. Right. Right. <laughs> And I I could understand from a certain perspective right yep. okay the payroll it's it's very hard to meet um whether it's bi-weekly or weekly whatever it is uh, very understandable but what you're proposing sounds like uh new more nuanced in the sense that yes. you may you may look at you know uh, if let's say this company is making such and such maybe above a certain uh I I don't know what their profit margin would be, but I suppose above a certain uh, level, then okay, you are required to maybe redistribute that uh, or rather uh, pay your employees more. That's great instead of sort of kind of a flat, oh, everybody has to do this level of minimum wage, which can put a strain on smaller businesses.
1: So I I hope it is a bit more nuanced because I am sympathetic for small businesses that struggle when minimum wages go up. I get that. That's not easy for them. And so the way I put it in the book, but there's multiple ways to approach this. Is you could establish a federal minimum wage, and you have to hew to that. It applies full stop to large corporations that are profitable, and it applies to small businesses too, except because they're more challenged, they get a tax credit um, to help them raise the wages up from where they are to where the federal minimum um, would specify, right? Because otherwise they'll they're just going to suffer. They're going to mm. we'll have too many small businesses going out of business. They do not have the same wherewithal and profitability that large companies do. So yeah, it's more nuanced. It's saying, you know, whether you make it a uniform minimum wage or you, you implement it differently for larger and smaller, uh, more profitable and less profitable corporations, fine with me. But, you know, recognize the differences that those different kinds of businesses face, the, the challenges those different businesses face.
2: And there was a book that I read a couple of years ago that I felt like for me was so life changing. So uh, a while ago, I would say about probably 10 years ago, I was a pretty staunch libertarian, which I uh, mean, no, and I'll tell you how this made absolutely no sense with my upbringing. So uh, this is, I would argue, kind of the fallacy of libertarianism is that we tend to well, uh, me at the time. So we tend to and I'm sure they still do. We tend to view ourselves in a, in a kind of light that in some ways disassociates us from, let's say, the reality of even our own lives. And here's what I mean by that. So uh, my mentor at the time in college, Dr. Tim Stroup, he gave me this book called The Self-Made Myth. And so I'm reading it and I'm like, oh, you know, oh, do you know it?
1: No, it's just the title is so perfect.
2: Oh, it's phenomenal book. By the way, it took me forever to actually read it because I was like, "Ah, I don't know, I don't have time. And he said, look, I'm telling you, just read it. Just read it. And if you want, you can debate me, we'll talk about it, right? So I finally read this thing and I'm thinking, my God, man, how the hell did I ever buy into this stuff? So this was my mentality at the time. So at the time I'm thinking, okay, so hard work obviously in my mind was the only thing that really mattered. And in some ways I convinced myself that my hard work was the thing that got me into and through college, because I was sort of at the tail end of it at the time. What's so funny is that I was on every single government assistant program at the time. So So not only was I on financial aid, TAP, like you name it, right? And several years down the line, I was even for graduate school, taking government loans. But on top of that, when I so I'm an immigrant, when I am, when we immigrated here to the U.S. from Kiev, from Ukraine, uh, we were on every single government program possible. So we were on welfare. We were getting food stamps at the time. And so now looking back on it, and obviously after, you know, piecing things together and being a little bit more rational after reading the book and a lot of his arguments, I realized Man, I would have never made it out of wherever we were at the time. Living, by the way, we were living in housing projects. There was no possible way that we would have made it out without that government assistance. So, in my mind, at the time, for whatever reason, I was able to block this all out and convince myself that it was actually my hard work that got me there. So, as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, like, my God, how the hell did I buy into this shit? And I'm talking to him, and I'm telling him, Yeah, you know you, knew, cause he already knew my past. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm sure when you heard me say these things and you knew that I was like, you know, getting programs or getting programs, help, uh, beginning help from programs while I was in school, he knew a little bit about my history. And I said, man, you probably saw the contradictions, right? And he said, yeah. And I was trying my best to point these out to you. And I didn't understand how you didn't get it. So <laughs> the way he thought of it, he thought, you know, I just thought, oh, wow, this kid must think he's going to be a fucking millionaire one day. Cause there's no possible way <laughs> rationally makes makes sense that he's subscribing to this philosophy based on his whole life trajectory based on where he even is now and the support that he's getting now right. I outside of him just believing I'm going to be a millionaire someday and I really need to fucking buy into this shit <laughs> I can't imagine him actually believing this and again going back into my childhood none of what we went through and I mean everything was literally government assistance so none of what we went through and none of my survival would have been possible without it I mean family help and whatever aside I mean obviously we're all immigrants There wasn't much that they were going to be able to provide for us like outside of I was living with my mom at the time when I was a kid obviously uh so and we, even like the little bit of help we have received from the community was nothing compared to that so even though government systems are flawed uh we had welfare taken away from us several times which was i mean pretty unfortunate obviously but right. the point is to say that in all of this is that kind of what you're seeing on this uh sort of far-right philosophy is that when people tell themselves that you know hard work is the only thing that matters it's for the most part is not only because they're not factoring luck i mean which i think is fairly obvious but also because they're not factoring in the various forms of assistance that not only were available to them but also everybody else in their culture. yeah
1: no that's that's exactly it and it, it it's it is both government assistance and it's um life circumstances and its family assistance and its family initial conditions, depending on what you start with. Right. All those things, people and 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 what race you were born as. That, you know, there's a lot of white people who think, hey, you know, I, I don't know, this whole racism thing doesn't seem so bad. It's like, yeah, it doesn't seem so bad to you. <laughs> you haven't had to live through it. So yes, I think this, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story when we were, when I was in um working at the Fed, I was in the executive team and we would have these discussions about you know, well, who should we promote? What kind of, what kind of competencies did we want to value in, in our, among our folks who are um, aspiring executives? And we went through this whole, it was a deck of conference. We had all these things, blah, 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 blah. They should be this, they should be that. We came on one. I said, you know what? One that's really important is self-knowledge and self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And because in a way, what you're talking about is being sort of fully self-aware. What circumstances did I actually grow up in? What advantages did I have? And Leon, you are not at all alone in being able to ignore the things that work that were working well to help you succeed. There's lots of people voting for conservatives who say this stuff all the time, and then you ask them, "Well, what about Medicare?" Well, the Medicare is not a government program, and that's great; we love it. You know, what about Medicaid for poor folks? Go, well, I mean, we need Medicaid or else we die. What about Social right. Security? Well, that's great. I mean, but that you can get. It's just like. What do you think the government spends most of its money on? It's like national defense, social security, Medicare, Medicaid. It's like it, it they're not, you don't have to say spend a percentage on, on welfare today. It's like one and a half percent of the budget. It's tiny. So, but anyway, they don't realize they are benefiting from those government programs. They, of course, also so often don't realize that being born white, even if you're poor, it's better to be poor and white than poor and black or poor and brown. There's just that's just the way the statistics look. And that of course tells us something about what our country has done. To, to people of color over over the decades so i i think your your experience is probably more typical than not that people have a really hard time seeing what it is that gave them advantages that some other people don't have they can't see that because what they see is if they succeeded of course our natural tendency is to say it's us look at me i'm brilliant I mean, I, I I did great in life me personally. I feel great. I had a great job. I got paid. You say I got paid more money than I could use, which was true. I couldn't use it all. I gave it away. I saved whatever. Um, terrific. Good for me. Is that only because of my work? Of course not. I had, I started in a great family. We had enough money to send me to the best universities in the country and the world. Um, that's an opportunity. I was white, um, I I had a family that uh, my parents are still together. That's that's not true for everybody. That does make a difference. But um, I had so many advantages. And of course, if I had totally slacked off, could I have screwed things up? Sure. Yeah. So does hard work matter? Yes, it does. But without all those other things, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And that's a self-awareness that's taken me decades to figure out. Um, So, Leon, I think you're in good company. And I'm glad you realized that that's that libertarian thing. I mean, there are times when libertarianism may make sense uh, in some circumstances, but boy, the notion that we're fine without any assistance from the government or whatever, coupled with this irony that many of the folks on the the more conservative spectrum will say, well, you know, that government assistance is terrible. No, no, the government is assisting mightily the private sector, the large corporations in the private sector today. And when we talk about you know things like baby bonds or anything that would, would address the enormous wealth gaps um, between on average white folks and people of color or just between really rich white folks and really poor low wealth white folks, people say, why would we use government resources to prop up a subsection of the population? Uh, and the answer is we already did. And we still do today. That's not new. It wouldn't be new at all. Uh, the, the new deal you've read i'm sure you've read about the new deal right the new deal was heavily sl- i mean, almost entirely slanted towards white families not that they all succeeded in the end but it sure didn't go to to black and, and hispanic families at the time to say nothing of what <laughs> this the sort of aid we provided to the indigenous people which was to massacre them so i mean it, it that awareness is is critical and it's part of the reason i wrote the book it's like we need to wake up to this we can't pretend that we did it ourselves and we can't pretend that government is neutral as it stands it's heavily slanted in particular directions and has been for a long time yep. so yeah and, and we can get with, going on that
0: <laughs> yeah
2: and then with libertarianism i would argue at least for me at that point and probably for many others i mean it was an invasion of responsibility i didn't really want to Maybe. think down the road what i owed my community what i owed society yeah. i mean there was this college kid coming out of poverty and at the time i was thinking i have to get out of it i have to take care of myself my family you know i can't think about the broader community right so, but obviously, I mean, that doesn't make sense because now, you know, obviously more mature uh, thinking about it, I have to live within the community. And if I'm, let's say, the one who's thriving while other people are suffering, I'm not going to be thriving too long. You know, if you uh, harken back to the French Revolution, I mean, i like to see the ballroom. Right. <laughs> so if you harken back to that. Good movie. Yeah. 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 So, now, so now let's get into actual solutions, right? The actual policy changes that we can make and things that we could start thinking about in order to, again, create a positive some world for most people.
1: Sure. So I like to start, uh, with the program that starts earliest in life and that's early education. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of early education and childcare. And I emphasize high quality uh, early childhood education for everybody, every kid. Um, why is that? <laughs> because, because the research is just incredibly clear. The first five years of life are, you know, foundational. And yes, you can recover from them to some extent, but man, it's uh it's not easy, but put positively investment in early childhood education of high quality just bears incredible returns. So if you put twenty two thousand dollars in today's dollars roughly per year per child into early childhood education, of course that's a lot. And there are a lot of families could't come close to affording that. But if you put that in people who afford it, pay for it, people who can't get subsidized by the government, it will return at least six times that, six times that in terms of, higher earnings, better healthcare outcomes, less likelihood of being involved in criminal justice system, all kinds of indicators that are just, I mean, just the dollars pay back immediately and then all the other social benefits, which are harder to measure. It's, there's just enormous payback. So why would you not do it is really the question. Um, and the answer is there's narratives that say hey, we're shoveling money into poor people. Why are we doing it? blah, 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 blah. Right. But, you know, put that aside. That is a solution. That is an important one. It is research tested. It's, it's a dead winner and we should be doing that. You know, not giving my family money for early check cause we can afford it. But for folks that can't, you know, if you're making 30,000, $40,000, you can't afford two kids at 20, obviously $20,000 a year. So you need that subsidized. The investment is tremendous. It would, it would be a game changer for the next generation. Then I worry about, you know, so that's, 25 years from now, we start to see the benefits of that. Okay, but what about people who are alive today? Well, I talk about a variety of things. So one is, we already talked about a change in the wage structure, and I think that has to be centrally coordinated. I know people; some people don't like that, but tell me how it works without that, and I'm happy to talk. But that's that's a thing. Another thing along the education front is, for many individuals and families, community colleges are the... The way they're going to get post-secondary education 40 over 40% of college education goes to community colleges now. Some of them are great. Some of them are not some of them, Most of them are underfunded. There are there's are some terrific ways of using community colleges to equip kids. Perhaps starting in high school, there are programs that do that, but certainly continuing into community college, you equip them with the kinds of skills that a specific employer needs for a job that will be ready for them at the end of that pipeline and and that's a job that's going to pay not, you know, 10 or 15 dollars an hour but 30 or 40 bucks an hour or maybe more. So 70, 80, maybe 100,000 income. You know, if one person in a really poor family gets that income, it changes the whole family's life. It certainly changes the kids' life. And those are things that don't require a four-year liberal arts degree, but they do require some technical training or whatever and community colleges are great for that. We do some of that in this country. We need to do 10 times that much or more. And that, that for kids who come out of high schools who are not going to go to a four-year liberal arts college, and for some of them, it doesn't make sense to go to four-year liberal arts. Um, but if they get this kind of training and pathway, and the pathway is as important as anything, just getting the training and then just being dropped out in the big wide world to fend for yourself. That's what we say all the time. Yeah, go figure it out yourself. But providing pathways, real employers with real jobs with great wages and benefits, life changer. So that's another really important um, set of programs that we could fund and those are not insanely expensive but they do cost something of course because not everyone can afford that right. the last thing there are other things in the book but the last thing I want to mention because we're, we're gonna we'll run out of time at some point here but the last thing I want to mention is so this inequality of wealth which is staggering is not a small thing it, it, you know it's not focused on as much as income because people think when you say wealth you're talking about well what you, everybody needs to have their own yacht or something it's like no no, no we're not talking about that wealth is just you have some savings sitting in the bank that can be used for basic and important economic purposes like so many families live at best paycheck to paycheck and if you if your boiler goes out if your car has a repair you got to drop out of school you you you're you're sunk you're used to you can't pay the rent you could be evicted all kinds of things can happen so at a bare minimum having some thousands of bucks 10 20 sitting around to buffer against those kinds of um, disruptions, which happen all the time in lots of people's lives, even more so for people who are in lower incomes with less stable, um, lower wage jobs. Just for buffering, it's critical. But beyond that, if you want access to education, to housing, you want to have a down payment for a house at some point, perhaps, um, to, to starting a company. Maybe you're an entrepreneur, naturally, and you've got that skill, but you don't have the capital, good luck to you. Um, and then, of course, for retirement, you want to have some source of stability beyond social security in your retirement well that's that's what that wealth is for it's not crazy wealth it's just it's just you know basic maintenance level wealth this is it is staggeringly
0: uh,
1: the the disparities are staggering for whites versus people of color but there's also some staggering disparities for whites who are well-off versus poor whites i mean there's whites who have nothing no wealth and they're not so i don't make this is this book is not only about racial justice it is absolutely about that but it's also to say there are a bunch of struggling white folks who often vote against their self-interest but they they are you know they deserve our care and attention too because they're struggling for not the racial reasons but for other reasons of economic structure where they don't get access to the opportunity to get the education that would help them succeed to get the wages they need to succeed all that so so on the wealth side there are opportunities to try to equalize wealth there are a number of ways of doing that. I, I talk about reparations in the book. I know that is a highly charged topic because I know there are people who yell at me sometimes just for saying the word. I think at a minimum we need to have a conversation about that because we bear responsibility for for what we did as a country. If you can't and how we and how we
2: still we're still and benefited.
1: how we still we still benefit, I still benefit. Absolutely right. And you know, that's a hard one to get people to say, Well, why should I pay for it? And so, well, because you benefited from it. You, you may not realize it, but you did. Okay. But maybe that's too hard for some people to swallow. We'll keep working on that. But in the meantime, baby bonds, what's the beauty of baby bonds? So, you you know, Derek Hamilton working at the new school in New York. Well, he, he, look him up. He's been writing about this. Field. He's talking to everybody about it. <laughs> really a pioneer in the area. But the, the way the, that program is constructed typically is that you make a deposit in any kid's account, as long as, you know, the parent's um, have low enough income and wealth, the lower it is, the larger the deposit is. So that's it. both white kids and kids of color get a deposit in their kid's account at birth of some significant amount of money. Um, in the book, I talk about tens of thousands of dollars, 20, 40, whatever it is. That's a lot. And that amounts to something, you you don't, you can't touch it until you reach the age of 18 or something. And then you can use it for education, for housing, for entrepreneurship, whatever. Um, Does that cost money? Yes, of course. I mean, it it adds up to some tens of billions of dollars annually to reach the populations in question, the lower income, lower wealth populations, and give them some significant deposit. But it it would go a long way, depending on the size of the deposit, towards equalizing, not equalizing, but getting toward closing those wealth gaps, getting something so that people are not left with no assets in the bank by the time they leave home and start to work. Um, so that's that's a program that I think is worth thinking about, it. and there are the state of Connecticut has a program that they just put in place. Pretty amazing, they actually did it. Um, it's not by my lights big enough, but it's a start. Um, there's a couple of other states thinking about it, and I think addressing that wealth gap is is critical. It's it is the product of decisions that we made as a country for centuries. And we need to come to a reckoning about that and say, okay, fine. I'm not saying everybody's going to pay for this because there's some people who don't have the money to pay for it, so they shouldn't. But as a country, we have the resources to pay for it over time and we need to have a serious discussion about that. And I think between baby bonds and reparations, and I would add significant down payment assistance because that's also a wealth transfer. So Massachusetts has a couple of programs that offer 25 to $50,000 down payment assistance for buying a wow. home for low income families now, they have to be high enough income that they're not going to bomb out of the house immediately they have to be able to afford a house but that's a significant wealth transfer right 25 doesn't close the wealth gap but it's well you know you sit up and take notice of that if you got no wealth to start with um that's another kind of wealth transfer i you know i think we have to be careful about how much we use housing as the way of equalizing wealth because it's complicated and it's not a surefire thing but Anyway, th- that's the final thing I'd say. There's other stuff in the book, but that those ways of trying to begin to close these wealth gaps is something we need to do. And we at the very least need to have serious conversations about that, in- including reparations, because it's part of the self-awareness project, right? As a nation, we need to be more self-aware. We, You know, the, the people who want to sweep that part of history under the rug, you can't, you can't do that. I'm not saying we're a terrible country. I, I live here. I chose to live here. I could move somewhere else. I like America. I think it's great. However, it's not lived up to its aspirations for all of these families. And it's made decisions that have been really destructive to first to black and brown folks in our country, including indigenous people, including a bunch of Southeast Asian populations have been treated badly over time as well. Um, All of the above. It's made those decisions and we need to own up to that and say, okay, this is what we did to benefit of people like me. So the government came to me and said, Jeff, you've got money in the... I've got a bunch of money in the bank that I don't even need for retirement. Um, I'm not the richest guy in the world, but I'm doing fine. If you if they said, we want to take some couple hundred thousand dollars from you because we're going to redistribute, I'd say, fine, you do that. I don't need it. I mean, I'm going to give it to a charity is what I'm going to do. And this is a better way of of uh, rectifying things than giving to the average charity that I might give it to. So I, I would happily pay that. Um, I'm not sure I'm in the majority. Of the country, but, but it's like, come on. Like, I mean, you know, people have got hundreds of millions of dollars or billions, of course you should be giving some of that away. And some do, but it should be the routine. It should be the expectation and it should be enforced by a government policy that makes sure that happens.
2: Yeah. So I love all of those. And in particular, the one about community college. So because yeah. I'm somebody who, in part because of poverty, so struggles significantly in school, I actually, I had to go to community college. And yeah. then so after community college for both my four year and graduate program, I ended up going to a city college. So yeah. with all of these government funded colleges, and obviously with community college, I mean, it was completely funded. I mean, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't have a business right now. I probably wouldn't be able to really make a living. So right. your programs are deeply important. And again, I specifically appreciate the one about community college. Great. All right. So Alan, as we start to wrap up, any final questions for Jeff before we go?
0: Yes, Jeff, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, buy the book, where can we do that?
1: So uh, I have a website called jefffuhrer.com. It's got links to the book's website, which is put up by MIT Press. You can get it from Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that. I would encourage you, just because I think this is cool on the small business side, go to a small Bookstore, most most not all of them, most of them are carrying it or they can get it for you. Um, I have a contact with a local bookstore in my hometown here, and it's just they're the just the greatest folks. They're you know it's not an easy business keeping a bookstore going these days, right? But they're doing it and they promote my book, you know, which is nice. I don't have to do that, but they've got great kids books in there. You know, if you can't get it from a small bookstore, Amazon doesn't need more of our dollars. They do some things that are good for us, but geez, they got enough money already, so. Anyway, you go to that website, jefffearer.com. It will give updates. It has uh, a list of places I'm speaking about the book in the next, uh, I've been speaking already the last two and a half months, but I'll be speaking January, February, March, um, and later. And it has a list of many of the places I'll speak, especially where they're, they're speaking to the public. Um, there's, you know, <laughs> I'm just really getting started at workings institution. I'll have some work posted up there in the next month or two. So there'll be some stuff to look at there too, but... That website will tell you pretty much what you need to know about what's going on with me.
0: Excellent. Awesome.
2: Thank you so, so much for coming on. So you are no our last sort of the year, man. So this yeah. is, I think this is one of the, the best and the, perfect, this is awesome. way end off the yeah. perfect way to end off the year. Uh, I hope you have a good new year, man. And again, thank you so much for this.
1: Thanks. So well, thanks to both of you for hosting. And I, I appreciate the work that you're doing, trying to get good, word like, good words like this out. <laughs> appreciate it personally, but just in terms of the causes as well. So keep doing that. And it's great to meet both of you. Great to meet
2: you Absolutely. You too, man. We'll be in touch with you soon. Sounds
1: great. Take care. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.
0: All right. So, everyone, that was an awesome episode. Thank you so much for watching our end of the year episode. Everybody, have a happy new year. And again, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, on Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast like subscribe hit the bell on youtube and again thank you so much for watching and see you next year